Take your Bibles or your Bible app and open to Genesis chapter 6. We started chapter 6 last week, uh, but we are uh, uh, moving on in chapter 6. We'll finish chapter 6, Lord willing, um, today. But one of the things we saw last week um, was a preview of what would be coming up, right? The Lord looks down and he sees as mankind began to multiply on the earth, there's all kinds of of, uh, of violence going on, all kinds of sexual impurity going on, and the Lord is sort of fed up with it. And, uh, well, not sort of fed up with it, he is fed up with it. And he says that the Lord saw Genesis 6, 5, and 6. He saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you hear all the absolutes in that sentence right there? And the Lord regretted. Some translations even say repented that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the the earth, uh, of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, if you can just allow your hearts to get to the point where we can, by God's grace and help, see that couple sentences for what they really mean. For your own heart, my own heart, that the thoughts and the intents, the intentions is the key word there of our hearts are only evil continually, or the NIV says only evil all the time. If you have any love for God, that cannot do anything but grieve you. And yet God doesn't leave us there. Verse eight says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is grace. Noah found undeserved favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Notice the shift of, of language there. God, God saw kind of generally speaking, God looked and God saw all of the wickedness that was on the earth, but here finding favor in the eyes of the Lord, just different language to draw in the intimacy and the closeness with which God looks out for those upon whom he shows favor, right? It's, it's a contrast that shows us this special love that God had for Noah. So remember, while Noah was righteous, he was still a sinner, still born through Adam's seed, and in the fulfillment of God's promise that sin would affect us to death, Noah also died. And so we need to be careful not to read of the wickedness of man and think that uh, of, of like that kind of wickedness, right? As we think about our day and age today, oh, this isn't as wicked as that wickedness. Have you looked around, friends? Have you looked around? We're uncomfortable with the word wickedness. We're uncomfortable with the word evil, but that's in fact what God calls it. Wickedness, evil, when we run away from the Lord. And we may think of some cultural things that surely are wicked and evil, but... Church, there is wickedness that we allow to continue even in our own lives. These acceptable sins, as, uh, as Jerry Bridges refers to them, respectable sins. So we need to see it for what it is and allow the Lord to deal with it in the way that only the Lord can through Jesus and through the ongoing, empowering, corrective, lovingly corrective work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, we don't have to be afraid. Uh, We don't have to be afraid of how God deals with our sin because we know that he's already dealt with our sin on Calvary. So we don't have to hide from the Lord. We don't have to shun, hide our face from the Lord. We don't have to turn and, and bury ourselves from the Lord, so to speak. We come openly and freely and sorrowful and just confess 
our sins to the Lord. A wonderful, wonderful act of worship if you're in Christ. So those sinful, Noah found favor or grace, undeserved grace, undeserved favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, we're going to transition here into the flood narrative. And I want to talk to you for uh, about some sort of technical things in the Bible. So I just need to beg your indulgence for a few minutes here. But it will really help us as we are looking at uh, the flood story here, right? So uh, in, in, in Hebrew... Uh, in Hebrew literature, in Hebrew narrative, and in Hebrew poetry, there are a couple of terms that are that will be helpful for us as we as we move forward. We've already seen some in, in early Genesis, but it really comes out here in uh, the story of Noah, uh, and, and that's the idea of what we call antithetical parallelism. Now, hang in there with me for a minute, okay? We think parallel parallelism. Just think about train tracks: two things that are going the same direction. They always run side by side in the same direction. Uh, going to the same place, if you will, right? Uh, so in, in the Bible, there are several kinds of parallelism. A couple of the main ones are antithetical parallelism, which we see here, and um, synonymous parallelism. Now, synonymous seems to make more sense. We just think of synonyms or two ways that agree with one another that communicate the same message, right? Listen to Psalm 113, 32, and an example here. 113 verses 2 and 3. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Do you have another slide there, Easton? Or did I not set it up correctly? Apparently I did not set it up correctly. I don't know what happened there. So what I intended was, I'll just tell you about it, it'll be okay. What you see there is the beginning and the end of verse, the beginning of verse two and the end of verse three, those two lines that run parallel together. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is to be praised, right? You see how those two lines are communicating that same idea. Well, what is invisible ink right there is uh, if you picture the Chevron symbol, right? Or a greater than sign. So from your perspective, it will be moving this direction, right? Greater than sign moving in this direction. You'd see these two lines that are indented from this. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Top line from this time forth and forevermore. And then immediately below that also indented would be from the rising of the sun to its setting. That's another way of saying or expanding on the idea from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting. You can see how that reinforces that idea in different words, but it adds to uh, the message that's being communicated. And then you move back out that level. The name of the Lord is to be praised. I'll show you it again in a, in a longer example here. But do you see how those, well, you don't see it, but do you hear how those two middle lines really build upon one another, communicating the idea that from the rising of the sun, from this time forth and forevermore, in the little moments of the day and in the big moments of eternity, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So that's uh, synthetic uh, or synonymous parallelism. Uh, antithetical parallelism is the same, accomplishes a similar goal in Hebrew poetry and narrative, but it, it's communicating the same message, but from an opposite perspective. So this is where the writer here, Moses, says something in an opposite way that communicates the same idea. Look at this Chevron symbol here that, that uh, Ethan's going to put up on the screen for you, if I get that in there right. There you go. 
It looks really teeny there, but it's supposed to be really big for you there. There we go. Okay. So if you look at this uh, Chevron symbol, starting on the top left of that symbol, often a, either a, a line in Hebrew language or an entire portion of a story begins. And then as you move down, it, it, we, we write it indented because it's, it's building onto the idea of what is being created. If we think about it in terms of scene, at the top left, you'd have scene one. And then a little down and to the right, you'd have scene two. And then keep going down that line, scene three, four, five, until you reach that point, which is the main point of what's being communicated. And then in opposite language or in an opposite way, the story begins to be fulfilled or reach its completion, moving back to the bottom left of that Chevron symbol. So here's what it looks like in the story of the flood. We see at the very top, there's an introduction that happens. And by the way, I just want to say, uh, different commentators will outline this in different ways and that's okay. There are different ways we can read it or structure it. It does not change the meaning of it. And so, and I know this is really small. I had to make it really small to try to get it to fit on one screen to show the point there. But if, at the beginning verses nine and 10 of our passage this morning, we see the, the generations or an introduction to what's about to be told. And throughout the book of Genesis, uh, some commentators, uh, will, will just outline Genesis by the these main Toledots or these main family lineages throughout the book. So you'll see this repeated throughout the book, right? And so verses 11 through 13, God resolves to destroy the corrupt race. And I'm going to move through this quickly. Building into the story further, Noah builds an ark according to God's instruction. Building further, the Lord commands the remnant, Noah's family and these animals to enter the ark. And then in chapter 7, verse 10, the flood begins, and we see the flood develop, and the waters prevail for 150 days. So about five months, the waters prevail on the earth before they begin to recede. The mountains are covered. And then what we see at the, in chapter 8, uh, the first part of verse 1 tells us, but God remembered Noah. And the whole story hinges on the fact that God remembered. Now, the word remembered, I'll get into it more on a future date, but the idea is that God thought about, God brought his attention to. This, this is not God forgot, and then all of a sudden he was like, ooh, I better not forget my promise. No, that, that's not, God can't do that. God brought his attention to the promise that he made. He remembered Noah in a way of communicating to us. And then you begin to move back down toward the left and you see that the waters recede for 150 days. It's about 10 months there uh, of water uh, prevailing on the earth. And then it begins to recede and the mountains become visible. And then midway through chapter eight, the, the, the earth dries up and you see that second letter C, the, 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 the com God commands the remnant to leave the ark, Noah's family and these animals to leave the ark. And right away, Noah builds an altar of worship to the Lord. And the Lord resolves not to destroy humankind as long as the earth remains. Now, we know that one day God will destroy it all and make a new heavens and a new earth. So one day everybody's going to get destroyed except for those who are in Christ. But God resolves not to destroy humankind as long as the earth remains. And we see here the Noahic covenant in chapter 9 and uh, kind of a conclusion to the story of the descendants that are Noah's there. And so that kind of brings is how we um, see this, uh, this story through this antithetical 
parallelism, right? It's part of what um, scholars would call a chiasm. Um, and uh, we, I'll mention a little bit later. We don't have to get into the detail on that now. But it's just this way of mirroring how, how Hebrew writers would communicate this message to Joshua and the Israelites. Remember, we're always trying to remember who's reading this first and why are they reading it? They're getting ready to go into Canaan. And God is writing a story or, or telling the story through Moses of who he is, who their God is, who is it that they serve, what is he capable of, and how has he remained faithful to his people there. And so we see the entire reversal uh, of this story on the bottom half of that chiasm or the bottom half of that chevron symbol, if, if you will. And so as we look at uh, this, the introduction and God's resolve and Noah's building an ark according to God's instruction, we're going to see this morning the necessity of walking with God if we are to stand alone in a world opposed to God. So with that as a little bit of backdrop for you, I'd like to read Genesis chapter 6 verses 9 through 22. We'll read this together. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined... To make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark should be 300 cubits. Or about a football field, a cup, uh, football field and a half, if you will. Make it 300 cubits. Its breadth should be 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. So that's about 450 feet by 70 feet wide by about 45 feet high. Make a roof. For the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set a door in the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh which is in which is uh, in the breadth. I'm sorry, my glasses are messing me up here. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in with you to keep them alive. Sort of feels like dad's watching the kids while mom is away. I kept them alive. (laughs) No, we do better than that. 
Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord God commanded him. To stand apart in a world that is opposed to God, church, we must walk with God daily. To stand apart in a world opposed to God, which is very much the world we live in, we must walk with him daily. Don't think of it as a spiritual checklist. Think of it as fellowshipping with God, hearing from him through his word, and joyfully living a life of obedient faith. That's what God's called us to. It's joyful. Noah was a righteous man, verse 9 tells us. Noah lived by faith. Now, Hebrews answers some questions for us about this faith. What is faith? Well, the writer of Hebrews said, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, the word hoped for means the assurance of things you are confident for. The assurance of things you anticipate through a confident expectation. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. See, faith has always been the way that God's people have pleased him. This didn't change with the coming of Jesus. Jesus did not introduce the idea of faith in the new covenant. We appropriate faith in the finished work of Jesus, the fact that we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, the fact that we believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, the fact that we believe that God will keep his promises. These things are faith, but the same was true of Noah. Noah believed God. Abram believed God. Moses believes God, and God credits righteousness to those who believe in faith. God imputes a theological word for that. God places on people who walk in faith, righteousness. Verses four through six in Hebrews elaborate on this more by faith. Abel, who we've read of, read of, recently offered a offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous God commending him by accepting his gifts and through faith though he died he still speaks this is an aside but friends when someone that we know and that we love dies Oftentimes we comfort ourselves with thoughts like, well, they're still here with us. And and we get what we mean when we say that. But those who go before us, who have trusted in Jesus, their life still speaks through their example of faith. Enabled and undergirded and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
Noah's faith was driven by a righteous fear of God. It's important to understand that because we don't like the idea of fearing God. Now, sometimes we contrast the Old Testament and the New Testament by saying, well, the Old Testament, people were afraid of God and, and, and God was uh, casting down all kinds of judgment and all that sort of stuff. Well, some of those things are true, but if you look very far already, we're only in chapter six, friends. It's like page six in my Bible. And we have seen more of God's grace already than we could shake a stick at. Second chance after second chance, even in discipline, even in cursing, there is opportunity for another chance to follow God in faith. But verse 11 tells us that Noah's faith was driven by a righteous fear of the Lord. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, now what is this? By his reverent fear, which was evidenced through his faith, which was made visible through the building of an ark, Noah... condemned the world and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Oh, friends, if we could grasp this, Noah was blameless in his generation. It doesn't mean he was perfect. It means he lived in such a way that out of reverent fear for God, he obeyed everything he knew to be true about the Lord imperfectly. He sinned. In other words, Noah was deserving of this flood that was still to be coming But God set his eye on him because God chose to set his eye on Noah. And he saved him. He saved his family and he saved what God had planned from before the foundation of the world would be the line through which our Savior would come. Of course, at this point, it's the line through which everybody comes, right? Because that's all that's about to be left here. Blameless in his generation. It means that he was physically uncontaminated. And and, and about Noah alone, Moses writes this. Nobody else is described this way. Noah is what we would call a type of Christ. Now, a type is very simply explained as just a a picture or one. uh, It could be a person. It could be an activity. We think about the Passover meal. That points forward to the coming and the perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Adam was a type. Noah is a type. Abram, Moa, these are types that are fulfilled in Jesus. We use the word anti-type for that. It means that they're fulfilled in Jesus. And so in a more perfect way than Noah, Jesus was uncontaminated by sin. But differently, see, Noah was uncontaminated by sin because out of reverent fear for the Lord, he walked in faith and he separated himself from, uh, from, from, from those who were, who were rushing into sin in his day. Jesus was uncontaminated by sin physically because he was born through the Virgin Mary. See, the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary and he was born through the Virgin Mary. Adam's sinful seed did not pass down through Jesus's earthly father, who was Joseph. Let me rephrase that. Adam was, Jesus was not born because Joseph and Mary got together beforehand, or Jesus would have been contaminated by the sin seed. The Holy Spirit impregnated Mary so that Jesus was born 
as God and man. Something that boggles our full explanation. 100% God and 100% man. Jesus is the type that Noah points to. Jesus wasn't conceived in sin. Luke tells us the Holy Spirit will come upon you to marry and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Hebrews tells us in 7.26, He is separated from sinners, uncontaminated from the virus of sin. He was perfect in His generation more fully and completely than even Noah was blameless in his generation. And next we see, we're still in verse 9 here, by the way, but we're going to be okay on time. Uh, next we see that Noah walked with God. Friends, we don't have a list of things that we're just supposed to check off to make sure that we're walking with God. We walk with God by growing in fellowship, by reading his word, and by fellowshipping with God's people. These are the ways that God has ordained for us to be able to walk with him. God didn't create the church to go it alone. God created us to be interdependent, dependent on one another as we are all together dependent on him. Luke 4, 4 says, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. This is, this is Jesus modeling for us, but also perfectly living out what it looks like to walk with God. He, 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 after he's baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him and the voice from heaven co comes and says, this is my son with whom I am well Please, my beloved son. Jesus is led by the spirit to be tempted. Why would God tempt me? Well, God doesn't tempt you. Satan tempts, or we're tempted, James tells us, by our own desires. When we see something enticing and we want it. Jesus was led in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when tempted... One of these temptations, one of these responses, all we have time for, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. Every response that Jesus gave came straight out of his Bible. We're to walk with God in such a way that when we're tempted with sin, our responses flow from scripture. Well, it was just such a hard temptation and I didn't know what to do. Well, then we're not in our Bibles. We're not fellowshipping with the body of Christ so that we can help each other know what to do because none of us is omniscient. None of us has all the answers for everything all the time. When, when, when uh, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, when the disciples slept, I guess it's the middle of his ministry, when the disciples slept, Jesus would, would retire to a place of solitude in a mountain. He would go up on a mountain. He would just pour out his soul to the Father in prayer, enjoying fellowship with the Father. Friend, no matter how perplexing your situation in life, you always have someone to talk to about your struggle. Go to the Lord. Lord, I don't understand what's happening here. I don't know what you're doing in this situation. I don't know what to do. Will you show me? I'll look in your word. I'll ask my brothers and sisters in Christ. <clears throat> Luke 6, 12. In those days, he went out to a mountain to pray. And all, in, uh, all night, Continued in prayer to the Lord. Good catch, David. Toward the end of his ministry, in the most dire of times in Jesus' life, he says, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. Even there he's walking with the Father, fellowshipping with the Father. Jesus walked with God perfectly. Noah didn't. 
Jesus walked with God perfectly. I won't. Jesus walked with God perfectly. You won't. It's not, God expect, it's not God's expectation of you. God's expectation is that we ought to walk with God in reverent fear, give, give evidence by our faith, which is further evidenced by the way that we live our life. I cannot tell you how often I hear people who just, well, live in such a way that doesn't give any resemblance of having walked with God. And I'm not trying to be judgy. I've got my own sin, plenty of it. But we're not going to shy back from what the Lord says, that you will know the tree by its fruit. Oh, I'm a Christian. I was baptized when I was five years old. But I just don't really, I just don't think you need to go to church. Well, Bible says you need to go to church, so you're in sin. Not going to church. Well, I don't think I need to, there's all kinds of examples we could give here. When the Bible says it, when the Bible makes it clear, it's not really ours to to debate. We ask for God's help, we ask others for help, and we proceed in faith. Right? God gave Noah, verse 14 tells us, he gave Noah a work that bore fruit for all of eternity. Think about this. God is saying, I've determined, I'm going to make an end of all flesh. I'm tired of it. I am fed up with the violence, the, the sexuality, the sin, the rampant evil and wickedness, and I am going to drown everybody. Oh, Pastor Matt. Well, that's what it happened. You don't see that in the children's books. We love the cute pictures of the animals, and some of them are even felt. You can pet the giraffe, and I get it. We're not going to necessarily... You know, I don't know. I'm off script. I need to get back to, this is going to go poorly. It's difficult at a children's level to communicate. But we must, friends, parents, if you read a book about Noah's Ark, and it does not communicate the judgment of Almighty God, you need to tell them. Well, aren't they too young to learn it? It's God's truth. It's God's truth. Impress upon their hearts at an early age that God does not overlook sin. God punishes sin, but in Christ, he punished it in Jesus. God would judge the world through this flood, and his judgment is final. Nobody swam through the flood, friends. We see this awful flooding that's happening in in Yellowstone right now. Shut down Yellowstone. That's just an nth of it. Could you just imagine that the floods would open up, that the ground would open up with water and that the skies would pour forth with water and everybody on the earth is like, what is this stuff? This has never happened before. And it just kept filling up and it kept filling up. But I digress, I get ahead of myself. God gave Noah the task of building an ark, a vessel for salvation. Don't focus on the judgment that we all deserve. Focus on the fact that God made a way. He made a way. I'm a teenager all of a sudden. He made a way. God made a way through the ark that Noah and his family would be saved. A remnant would be saved. See that as God's grace, God's kindness that no one deserves. And he gave you and I work to do that bears eternal fruit. 
right? I want to just tell you, friends, in the last several months, through the, through the ministry of, of many in this church family, we've seen three people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We, we're having seven people that are going to get baptized in three weeks. And I think about 12 that are joining the church as members. The numbers don't matter as much except to say God is at work. And he uses his church to do the work of the ministry. Well, I don't really feel called to that. What God says, go into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That is the work of the ministry. That is the work of the local church. My job, the elder's job, is to equip you to do that work. And yes, we do it alongside of you, but it is not our job to do all of that. It is your job, church family. Ladies, it is your job, older ladies, to come alongside younger ladies and befriend them and disciple them. Older men, it's your job to come alongside younger men and disciple them and equip them in the faith. Well, it's not flashy. I tell you what, when somebody, when somebody says, I need Jesus, that's pretty flashy. That's pretty exciting. I'm pretty fired up right now as a pastor. Let me tell you, God is working in Oak Grove Church. God is saving people in Oak Grove Church. And it's not so that Oak Grove can make a name for ourselves. It's so that we can make a name for Jesus. In the same way that God gave Noah saving work to do, he would stand alone in the crowd for a very long time, bearing a, bearing a building a very large ark. Could you imagine the insults? That's a pretty big bar. Ark, ark, who all's going in? Oh, just my family. You going to have enough room? Well, God's bringing animals and all that kind of stuff too because we need to repopulate the earth after you drown. I'm not going to drown. You see all these generations who've come before? I know he didn't say that. Somebody said, jeez. But it's true. That's what happened. God promises in verse 18. He's going to establish a covenant with Noah. Now, let's not jump ahead because that, that is actually in chapter 9, verse 9, what we would call the Noahic covenant where God promises and gives a sign through the rainbow that he will never destroy the earth again through a flood. But here he promises that he will do it, which is why when eight, chapter 8, verse 1 says, and God remembered Noah, we should immediately see that as God is keeping his promise. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. God established a covenant with Noah and you and I live in the fulfillment of that covenant, the new covenant, what we call the new Testament of grace through the perfect life and sacrificial death and a resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. This new, in this new covenant, we, we hold out the promise of eternal life and fellowship with God, the father friends. If you're talking with people about the Lord, please don't make it sound miserable. Yeah. Well, you need to repent of your sins. I mean, if you love God, you want to run from your sin. You want to repent of your sin. You want to flee from it. You hate it. God gives you new desires, new want-tos. What a joy. What a message we carry, church. Flee from your sin. Flee from the depravity of the world and run to Jesus. How dare we ever, and I, I say this with kindness, how dare we ever 
talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and there be any hint of. But if you don't, you'll probably be okay. We don't say that. But sometimes I'm afraid that our lack of urgency communicates. You know, I've chosen this. You can choose what you want. Well, the truth is they can. But they will drown in a deluge of God's judgment for all of eternity. Do you realize that, Christian? That's your your unsaved mom or dad or child or your cousin or your niece or your nephew or your boss or your employee. Everyone who does not call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will drown in the judgment of God. And we cannot just casually skip through life working for a bigger house or a nicer car or a, a nice, calm, peaceful life in the church without really making an impact in the lives of people, friends. Could you imagine standing before the Lord? I'll never forget one of the most impo- impactful sermons in my generation was when Pastor John Piper preached at, one, uh, at, at, at Passion many years ago, and he preached a sermon on seashells and talked about retirement. Seniors, I'm talking to you right here, and he just talked about the reality that seniors ought to invest their lives for the kingdom of Christ. How dare we just try to go on vacations and enjoy the comfortable life and collect seashells was the example that he used that rung true with so many people. And could you imagine standing before the Lord one day? And I, again, I say this in such great deep love, friends. It's the most enjoyable life to live, but to stand before the Lord one day and say, look at my seashells. Look at my, my postcards, all the pins I've collected from everywhere I've been. Oh no. God, look at the people. That's what Paul says. The fruit of my ministry is you. I got nothing else. Nowhere to live, nowhere to lay my head. You're the fruit of my ministry. Brothers and sisters, that is not just the ministry for the pastor or the elder or the church planner. That's the ministry goal for the Christian. Well, I'm not equipped. Well, it's not because, well, there is so much joy to be had. I don't, I don't want to use guilt to try to motivate you. I know I'm tempted with it because I can be sort of results-oriented at times. I don't want to do that. I just want to tell you, like God gave Noah the eternal work of building an ark for the salvation of his family and the future popularization of the world, God has given the church incredible work to do. But along that way, when we're busy with the work of God, some will be saved while others will be judged. Verse 11, uh, I'm sorry, chapter Hebrews 11:7 says, by faith, Noah, now don't check out because we already read this earlier. Noah being warned by God, remember God's warnings are grace. Somebody's about to run out in front of a car and you scream at them with all of your lungs. You're going to startle them. Why? Because you want them to live. In reverent fear, he constructed this ark for the saving of his household. Now listen to this. By this, through his reverent fear of the Lord, which showed evidence and faith in the Lord, which gave its further evidence in the building of an ark. 
by, by this package, this. He became an heir of righteousness. I'm sorry, by this, he condemned the world. And he became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Friends, the world is already condemned. And when we live according to God's ways, people will get angry sometimes, often. Because our living for righteousness out of reverent fear for the Lord is condemning to them, even without our words. Why? Well, Romans tells us that through creation, they know there's an eternal God that they need to give an answer to. Peter preached to the Jews in Judea in Acts 2, and he says this. He says, let all the household of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, one of my favorite script uh, phrases in all of the Bible, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? And Peter said to them, and I'm not going to read the whole scripture he's in this whole time, but the beginning of it, he said, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children, for your children's children. And the church grew by several thousand that day, 3,000 that day. Friends, if we're going to stand apart in a world opposed to God, we need to walk with him in faith daily. The, the, the fruit that comes from that will flow I want to say naturally, it will flow supernaturally as the Holy Spirit is at work in our life through his ordained means through the word of God and in conjunction with the body of Christ. I will say that phrase until the day that I die because no one is ever intended to be living this life, life independently. Maturing believers, new believers need you to walk alongside them. Well, don't we have a class for that? Well, yes and no. If we create too many classes for that, you won't do the responsibility that God has given you, which is what? Teaching them everything I have commanded you. That's God's charge to the church members, to the body of Christ. Verse 22, the end of chapter six. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And so like Noah, yeah, but ultimately like Jesus, of whom Peter said, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. We need to do all of the words that God commands us to do. Now, don't find a technicality like, well, I can't do them all. Start with the ones that you know you're not doing. And let's just let the Lord work from there. God's faithful. He knows what he's doing. He knows where you're at in your walk with the Lord. He's not surprised by you. But I would tell you, if you're not engaged in discipling or being discipled, I would submit to you that I think there's disobedience there. And I say that because I want you to experience the joy of walking with God in the discipling relationships that God intended to build the body of Christ. Jesus is our ultimate ark, friends. He's the one who saves from the deluge of God's judgment that is coming. If you're an unbeliever, will you come to Jesus today? I mean, if you acknowledge that you're a sinner, which every one of us in here would acknowledge, oh, I've told a white lie, or I've stolen this, or I've cheated on a spouse, or I've stolen over here, or I've used 
foul language here. I've had impure thoughts. I mean, like we all check the box. We all tick the boxes there. You're in the position of one standing on the ground, looking up at a massive ark, a massive savior in Jesus, refusing, refusing to walk on, thinking you'll be okay. But there will come a day, friend, when the waters will bust forth from the ground and the heavens will pour down waters. And in a different way, God's judgment will come. And for everyone who has not repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you'll be judged. But Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, which is a similar way of saying, everyone who comes to me who calls on my name in faith will be saved. Heavenly Father, we uh, praise you, we exalt your name for the fact that you are so merciful and gracious to, to warn us, which we often get offended by the warnings, but we forget because we forget that a warning is your merciful grace to us. You warned us. You provided a means for salvation through Jesus. And you promise to complete the things that you start in your people. Now in there, there are a whole lot of questions, but of those things, we're sure that you will call us home. Do the work we pray that you need to do in this room, Lord. May all of our hearts be open and ready for you to move today. And may we do as Noah did, but even more so as Jesus did, all that you command us to do today for your glory and for the furthering of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.